0: All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking out to you,
1: ladies and gentlemen, and I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Propaganda films spread and promote certain ideas that are usually religious, political, or cultural in nature. A propaganda film is made with the intent that the viewer will adopt the position promoted by the propagator and eventually take action towards making those ideas widely accepted. When Britain and France went to war with Germany in 1939, Americans were divided over whether to join the war effort. It wouldn't be until the surprise attacks on Pearl Harbor in December 1941 that the United States would be thrust into World War II. Citizens were invited to purchase war bonds and take on factory jobs to support production needs for the military. As men were sent to the battlefields, women were asked to branch out and take on jobs as riveters, welders, and electricians. Words, posters, and films waged a constant battle for the hearts and minds of the American citizens, just as surely as military weapons engaged the enemy. Persuading the American public became a wartime industry almost as important as manufacturing of bullets and planes. The government launched an aggressive propaganda campaign with clearly articulated goals and strategies to galvanize public support and it recruited some of the nation's foremost intellectual artists and filmmakers to wage the war on the front. While most propaganda aimed to boost patriotism, some took on racist overtones. Director Frank Capra produced seven films called Why We Fight, which portrayed German, Italy, and Japan as nations of inhuman murderers. Warner Brothers sent Popeye and Bugs Bunny to fight the Japanese while Disney released a short showing Donald Duck incapacitating Hitler with a ripe tomato. The war movies and cartoons did their part to keep Americans focused on the war effort, even as they were being entertained. Thank you to PBSandHistory.com for some of that great backstory and history. So Ben, starting out this episode, I wanted to jump into propaganda film, and I want to jump into the question right away. What do you think of propaganda film? Can propaganda films go too far? is there some good in using propaganda films and and where do you see them being used today in 2021? It's like a,
0: it's a slippery slope because I think they do have a good, there's good intention behind it when used properly, especially for something like world war two with the way the Americans did it and the way to, you know, bring the nation together and, and uh, you know, give everyone, it's almost like a pep rally, you know, get, get them excited you know and and more into backing the war and supporting it because of what America had to do so i get like that's important but what stuck out to me was that last line he read even as they were being entertained the audience being entertained and you know i go back to to the conversation we had for all quiet on the western front is a movie about war is something about you know like using something that's horrible that's going on in real life as entertainment as box office glamour it it feels so strange to me and so often and and when we talk about the movie we're going to be talking about in this episode it's such a propaganda uh film that it doesn't feel genuine it doesn't feel like entertainment i just you get lost in just the idea of a propaganda film and you don't appreciate it you know as an as another film you know as something like all quiet on the western front which isn't a propaganda film that's a very anti-war piece of art whereas something like today's episode on mrs miniver it is meant to be more about you know getting everyone to rally and and support the the cause and and support the uh, the allies and in world war Two. so it's kind of like the double-edged sword i and i and i think like when you ask like can it go too far i think like this movie and kind of this whole year of 1942 in film goes a little far for at least for me and for how films should be used and and the entertainment side of, of films so i'm not saying that we shouldn't be supporting you know the country that we shouldn't be you know excited and and wanting to fight but i am saying that it's very troubling that of how many people were behind propaganda films like this at the time and viewing it as entertainment instead of as
1: as a pep rally type thing i think it's hard it's like a a dual-edged sword in a way where i mean if you ask germans and hitler when All Quiet and the Western Front came out, they would call that a propagandist film. They would call that anti-war, anti-German, anti anti a whole bunch of laundry list of things. And I think there's a lot of people that would call that propaganda film just in the way that it kind of goes against promoting any war and it promotes peace and and really just being together as as a people. But it's it's so complicated because I think there's so many things that could be considered propaganda films nowadays. I think you could look at Facebook or social media sites where literally any like video that's promoting an ideology an idea anything it could be about like being vegan or it could be about being republican or democrat like you could consider all of that propaganda films or propaganda shorts like it could just go on and on about what could be propaganda and literally so much is at this point so it's really interesting seeing something that's like a film like a dedicated feature that's dedicated to kind of showing or depicting something that's trying to push some sort of agenda and we didn't talk about this in the last episode but we talked about john Ford, obviously because he directed How Great is My Valley, which was our last episode. And we never spoke about his relationship with John Wayne, it was always his like favorite actor, you know, he made a lot of Westerns, and he was like a really close friend to John Wayne. And learning more about Ford, he had a really big problem when John Wayne refused to join the army, right? He refused to go to war. And the details of why and and uh, the reasoning why he didn't want to go to war, they were kind of vague from what I was able to find. But it makes me think, like, is John Wayne being in war films, showing that aspect, like being in propaganda films about World War II, is that more impactful than simply going and fighting in the war, being there on the front line? And is there, you know, is one better than the other? Are they equal? Like, what do you think about that? That's such a, that that's really
0: tough. And it's tough for several reasons. One, the first thing that jumps out to me is that uh I, I forget which oscar year that this happened i think it was 71 but one of the people that won that year they made a big political statement about the vietnam war and and i'm more than 100 percent positive just think, thinking this all right off the top of my head that john wayne was like one of the hosts or he was at that ceremony and slammed that person for being political so so for to hear that john wayne you know not going to the war and and, and that kind of impact on his relationship with john ford is very interesting does it Seeing him in a in a film does that help with rallying people with getting people excited like a propaganda film? I guess it does. I guess it does. It, it heightens that a little bit. You know, my mind <laughs> goes to the other side of it, like with a movie with uh, a movie like Inglorious Bastards, where you have you know the whole a subplot of that is that a German soldier is in these movies and he's being used as propaganda, and it's his likeliness and his image that's that's being used as a rallying cry. So I guess like it does work if you want to say that it, you know, if you're asking if it works or not, but it doesn't do much for me in terms of like, you know, that, Oh my God, John Wayne is, you know, portraying this character and, and it gets me going. And I think that has to do because I'm removed, you know, we're, we're 80 years removed from world war II and the, the beginning of it. And almost, you know, almost a hundred years from when even the Nazis were rising up. So it's like, it's very hard for, for me, coming at it from my point of view in 2021 to feel as excited and as empowered about America at this time, just because what I've seen and experienced the wars that we have seen growing up. It, so it's just very odd. And I also wanted to touch upon what you were saying before about how propaganda content is seen today, you know, trying to, as like an ad and there's so much sponsored content out there. You don't even know, like, yeah, you don't know what's real, what's paid promotion. You know, they, you know, Twitter will put like a little thing. It's like sponsored content on like a tweet. And, but for years, people never knew that. And so people are always, you know, taking in propaganda. They're always taking in ads and other people's thoughts and ideas. And they think it's genuine filmmaking and genuine art, but really there's a reason behind it. You know, there's money behind it. Whereas for like propaganda films, for what we're talking about today, it was World War Two, So it's like a little bit different, but that same idea
1: is still there where you lose some of that, genuine aspects of filmmaking i think it's all really about time you know like propaganda can be considered a lot of different things but in this time it it felt like a necessary thing right you had to spread a message about what was going on it's really hard to kind of like understand world war ii i would imagine from like the ground and being in america or being someone who wasn't sent to actually go fight to like understand what that's like and i know a lot of people they went to the movies because it was such a popular form of entertainment at this point that showing like short films and showing some of these, like some of them showed actual footage from the war. So I think there's so many different aspects of propaganda. You, you look at something that's actually on the boots on the ground, like boots on the ground, like showing what's actually going on. And that's like a very truthful way of depicting something. And you may still have a message that's pr- making it propaganda in a way, or you could do what Frank Capra did who was making these seven films called why we fight that were kind of comical that like kids could probably understand that like a whole family could go to see a film and they could see these commercials and be like yes like my husband is leaving because like he's doing the right thing like there's people that are trying to ruin the world but it's also kind of like does should we cross that line like we're depicting them really cartoony as like awful evil murderers which is like true for a lot of the sense but not for everyone who's german italian or japanese right well that's the hard thing
0: of the of the depiction of it and i think that's also because at that time they didn't really know about what what they were doing in concentration camps about the holocaust you know people people didn't know and and that's one of the sad things about it so i think that's another perspective for us that's hard to look back on World War II and, and propaganda and war films is because there's this missing piece and 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 it's not it has nothing it's not the filmmaker's fault they, no one knew no one knew that the Jews were being killed like this in a mass genocide at the time so it so f- when we're watching like World War II films or films about World War II as World War II is happening or like right after it's over it's still missing that like key piece so yeah it's very patriotic but also it's a failure on the world for what happened and so it's just it it's it's odd It it is very odd to look at and like yeah like Frank Capra made some great films and, and and won a lot of awards like this series of films but at the same time we're so far again like we're so far removed from it how can I truly appreciate it if I'm not there at the moment because now I'm just watching something that that I know was propaganda film that I know was used for a certain purpose and it was not entertainment and it wasn't how how we're trying to even talk about like these films in general as entertainment as film as art you know it's it's such a weird thing it's it's a weird balance it's a double-edged sword as you said before so it's it's certainly
1: strange uh to talk about it definitely and i think that perfectly leads us to our film today mrs miniver so ben is mrs miniver worthy of the best picture award of 1942 (laughs)
0: Mrs. Miniver, a British family struggles to survive the first months
1: of World War II. Kay Miniver and her family live a comfortable life at a house called Starlings in Belham, a fictional village outside London. The house has a large garden with a private landing stage on the River Thames, at which is moored a motorboat belonging to her devoted husband, Clem, a successful architect. They have three children, the youngest, Toby and Judy, and the older son, Vin a student at Oxford University. They have a live-in staff, Gladys, the housemaid, and Ada, the cook. As World War II looms, Vin returns from the
0: university and meets Carol Belden, granddaughter of Lady Belden, from nearby Belden Hall. Despite initial disagreements, mainly contrasting Vin's idealistic attitude to class differences with Carol's practical altruism, they fall in love. As the war comes closer to home, Vin feels he must do his bit And enlists in the royal air force qualifying as a fighter pilot he is posted to a base near his parents home and can signal his safe return from operations to his parents by blipping his engine briefly as he flies over the house vin proposes to carol in front of his family at home after his younger brother prods him to give a less romantic but more honest proposal than he had envisioned together with other boat owners clem volunteers to take his motorboat the starling to assist in the Dunkirk evacuation.
1: Early one morning, Kay, unable to sleep as Clem is still away, wanders down to the landing stage. She is startled to discover a wounded German pilot hiding in her garden, and he takes her to the house at gunpoint. Demanding food and a coat, the pilot aggressively asserts that the Third Reich will mercilessly overcome its enemies. She feeds him, calmly disarms him when he collapses, and then calls the police. Soon after, Clem returns home, exhausted from Dunkirk. Lady Belden visits Kay to try and convince her to talk Vin
0: out of marrying Carol on account of her granddaughter's comparative youth at age 18. Kay reminds her ladyship that she too had been young, 16 in fact, when she married her late husband. Lady Belden concedes defeat and realizes it would be futile to try to stop the marriage. Vin and Carol marry. Carol has now also become a Mrs. Miniver and they return from their honeymoon in Scotland. A key theme is that she knows Vin is likely to be killed in action, but their short love will fill her life. Later, Kay and her family take refuge in their Anderson shelter in the garden during an air raid and attempt to keep their minds off the frightening bombing by reading Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, which Clem refers to as a lovely story. They barely survive as a bomb destroys part of Starlings. The Minivers take the damages of Nonchalance.
1: At the annual Village Flower Show, Lady Belden silently disregards the judge's decision that her rose is the winner. Instead, she announces that the rose entered by the local station master, Mr. Ballard, named Mrs. Miniver, as the winner with her own Belden Rose taking second prize. As air raid sirens sound and the villagers take refuge in the cellars of Belden Hall, Kay and Carol drive in to join his squadron. On their journey home, they witness fighter pilots in a dogfight. For safety, Kay stops the car and they see a German plane crash. Kay realizes Carol has been wounded by machine gun fire from the plane and takes her back to the Starlings. She dies a few minutes later after they reach home. Kay is devastated. When Vin returns from battle, he already knows the terrible news. Ironically, he is the survivor and she the one who died. The villagers assemble at the badly damaged church where their vicar affirms their detrimentation in a powerful
0: sermon. A solitary Lady Belden stands in her family's church pew, then moves to stand alongside her, united in shared grief, as the members of the congregation rise and stoically sing, Onward, Christian Soldiers. The camera pans to the empty sky showing through the gaping hole in the bombed church's roof. We hear a full orchestra triumphantly playing Land of Hope and Glory and see flight after flight of RAF fighters in the V for Victory formation heading out to face the enemy. Mrs. Miniver starred Greer Garson as Mrs. K. Miniver. Walter
1: Pidgeon as Clem Miniver. Teresa Wright as Carol Belden. May Whitty as Lady Belden. Henry Travers as Mr. Ballard. Richard Nye as Vin Miniver. Christopher Severn as Toby Miniver. Claire Sanders as Judy Miniver. Mrs. Miniver was directed by William Wyler. Writing credits by Arthur Wimperis. James Hilton, Claudine West, based on the book by Jan Struther, and contributing writers Paul Osborne, R.C. Sheriff, and Henry Wilcoxon. Produced by Sidney Franklin and William Wyler. Music by Herbert Stothart. Cinematography by Joseph Ruttenberg. Film editing by Harold F. Kress. Art direction by Cedric Gibbons. Set direction by Edwin B. Willis. Sound design by
0: Douglas Shear. So, John, Mrs. Miniver. uh, I know we're going to get a few chuckles. Uh, Before we actually even start, when you heard the name Mrs. Miniver, what did you possibly think this movie could have been about?
1: Yeah, I didn't talk about that last episode, but I I like to go in so uninformed. You know, some of these movies I've seen or I've just kind of heard, obviously, because they're so iconic and famous. But this movie I've never heard of. I've never heard anyone talk about this movie or reference it at all throughout like my entire life never hurt anyone honestly i had no idea what this movie was about i knew it was like we're getting close to wartime like we're officially in the war now for america just about so because pearl harbor happens like what like a month or two yeah this movie comes out in june of 42 so it's a few months after yeah after pearl harbor so in my mind i was just like oh it's like an american like woman who's uh, left in America who's trying to like care for her family while her husband's at war and like that was my general I- idea <laughs> like of what, what you the movie would what be it would, yeah. yeah exactly going in without knowing anything yeah. yeah
0: and then when the first 20 minutes of the movie is about Mrs. Miniver getting a hat hiding it from her husband and then showing it off to her husband and just like just everyday life you know slice of life you know
1: 20 25 minutes intro then what did you think the movie was about? <laughs> I had no fucking clue at that point. I mean i w let's jump into that though. Like why why do you think they found it necessary to spend that much time, like, showing their life and and how it was previously? I think yeah, well, I think that's the idea, is it's supposed to be showing
0: ordinary life before the, the events were yeah, yeah. Before, before war happens. And this is based off of it says it's a book by Jan Struther, but I w- had read that it was just like short stories and little excerpts that this is kind of based off of, and most of it was really just the ordinary life, and they kind of fit together the you know World War Two aspects of it. So it's a very strange opening, and really doesn't pick up steam until maybe the first until forty forty five minutes into it. Maybe I, mean, I would say I, an hour. Yeah, that, like that's being generous. And, there's like some things that happen in the beginning, but, but in full transparency and full honesty, the first half hour of this movie, you don't need, and it's very, it's just not important to the overall story. It, just, it, I guess it does build up character and does build up some of the story. It doesn't really serve any purpose, though, to it. So I guess maybe the first place to really start is Mrs. Miniver herself, which is Greer Garson. And she, you know, the movie is called Mrs. Miniver. You're supposed to be. I guess like totally entranced by her and, and totally into it because she's the main star of the film. But I gotta say, she was pretty weak and and honestly, she doesn't have that many lines. That not not that there there's nothing substantial that she says, but she
1: doesn't have that many lines just in general. I just find this movie so odd that it's even called Mrs. Miniver. Like I, it should be at least called The Minivers or yeah. like just I don't. It just doesn't make any sense. Like the movie, yes, the rose is about her. We like follow her through certain moments of, of the war. We have like the great bomb shelter scene and we have her confronting the German, which is like one of the best parts of the movie, but there's just not enough that happens. Like there's just not enough that happens even with her to be even considered our main lead character, let alone to be the name of the actual film. It's like, yeah, it felt like they didn't know what else to call it. And they're like, Oh, people like that, you know, confrontation scene with Miss Miniver. So might as well just call it Miss Miniver. Like, I just, I mean, her performance to me is good. It's there. It's, you know, she's, she's beautiful. She's like fun to watch on screen, but when not much is really happening for like the first hour, it's, you just constantly keep thinking like, what is this movie? Why yeah. am I watching it? Like, what, where is this movie going? Like, what's the story that we're supposed to be like following and engaged in? And by the time we get to the end of it, it's just like, oh, it's not really a story like this. Yeah. It's kind of like a documentary, which is in the same way that Kid was where I was like, here's what life was like, or here's what happened in this kind of point in time. Isn't this crazy? Like, don't you relate to this? But now you don't. You, yeah, you don't. You, yeah, you don't. And, and my other question about
0: Greer Garson's just performance in general is that does Mrs. Miniver actually have any character development? You know, we've seen some great best actress performances already, and we will continue to see some uh, when I think of like Claudette Colbert, you know, that whole transformation that she went through, uh, you know, just as the character itself. And, then when you see Gerard Garson in this movie it, it just doesn't she doesn't like change that much she's pretty much the same person from start to finish and i'm not saying that's like a bad thing but then when you think about again like what a movie should be and, and how a movie should transform someone and really just stories in general should transform people she isn't really transformed yeah she go they go through shit It doesn't seem like she's actually that affected by everything that's going on.
1: No, like you would want to see a larger change. I mean, you watch film to experience a story, but also see characters change and like go through an arc. And I really don't think any character in this movie has an arc. Like, I guess they're trying to kind of show that where, you know, they care about like materialistic things. Like their life is like kind of beautiful. They just like really want to buy and. And spend their money and they like love their family and they have such a nice perfect life and then by the end it's just like oh their house is destroyed like they're just happy to see their son like they're just but like they don't like really specifically dive into that to be oh yeah like that's what this is about like how much you can be changed, but like as long as you have your family, like yeah. things will be okay. But it doesn't. It doesn't try to send that message at all. It just kind of shows you things that happen.
0: Yeah, I think the actually the only character that goes through some kind of change is Lady Belden. And yes, this, and exactly.
1: I didn't. even Yes, she does. Yeah, she definitely does. And
0: that's only just because she goes from I'm this old, you know, rich lady who just wants to live in this like hierarchy of social structure, and at the end she's like, oh, I'm gonna. I'm going to allow my rose to be beaten and I'm going to allow people to stay in my cellars, which is like great and good for her that she good for her that she like changes her, that part of her character, but she's not the main part of this movie. And it's like such a minor subplot. And even like that subplot could just be taken out and this movie wouldn't change. I, I actually don't even know what the rose is really supposed to represent. I don't think of roses when I think of like patriotism, when I think of things that like last forever, I just think of something that's love and romantic and, So to, like, center kind of, like, a big subplot of this movie on a rose being named after Mrs. Miniver really just convolutes this
1: whole, like, all the themes and and everything else going on. It really just makes no sense. It's kind of hard to understand why it's in there. To me, like, trying to think about it pretty hard, like, pretty intensely is that it's there to maybe symbolize how these people are trying to, like, still keep their life together. Like, they're still trying to have some sort of normalcy while this war is going on. And so much is happening that they want to try to still you know keep the children calm like still have what they're used to having in life and enjoy enjoy these moments but like that again is just not really fully explored and if we want to talk about the rose a little quickly this film is in black and white which is totally fine like we've seen some amazing beautiful films but it's really hard to appreciate a rose in black and white i'm sorry yeah. it just looks like an, an a regular flower like you see the petals you can see it's a rose, but the film like barely even shows a close up of the rose. So it's just like, why is this here? Like if you want to do it, do it, show yeah. it. But no, they just don't. Yeah. And it's it's
0: disappointing for several reasons. I, and One mainly is that Joseph Rundenberg is the cinematographer for this and he's one of uh, the all time best of, of this era. And yeah, you, you just don't get to sh- like you should be using color for like this purpose. If you're going to use a rose, yeah, use it. Like go out there and, and you do this in color and it it just doesn't like work and the rest of the cinematography is okay the rest of the movie is fine in black and white but to center a whole subplot on something that's supposed to represent beauty and and you're supposed to see it really in color it just doesn't work it just you you don't even you don't even know that it's a rose like what they show it's just like oh that's just supposed to be a flower and then when you kind of do get to see it a little bit up close you can just tell it's fake yeah so it's like oh this isn't cool or interesting at all so uh, just yeah, so just like the whole setup and then character of Mrs. Miniver and like adding this whole beginning subplot because cause the beginning shows off that she gets to see this rose and she finds out from M- Mr. Ballard Henry Travis' character uh, that he named this rose after her, and it's like that's great and all, but then you just keep going in the film and, and it just sits there in the back of your mind and doesn't get readdressed until way later in the film. Um, so yeah, so you know, so so Mrs. Miniver herself is really just vanilla as a character and then you have walter pigeon as clem her
1: husband who even more vanilla <laughs> more vanilla and,
0: and which sucks because we spent a lot of time for how green Was my valley how we loved walter pigeon yeah he's phenomenal he was phenomenal and like he's not
1: bad in this he's just not great in this either yeah i mean they're not no one's performance is bad i mean we can even talk about the kids well no, no no
0: there's some bad performances
1: i mean of like the main cast yeah. and like the family i don't think anyone has like a bad or poor performance but he is as a character, like like Ben. Tell me anything about Mrs. Miniver or Clem Miniver, and you're gonna tell me that like she likes hats and he likes cars because that's literally all we know about these characters. And they're strong people, <laughs> and they're and they're rich. Yeah, which is another huge point of contention yeah. I know with people because, I mean, it's hard not to see it. Like there's this iconic bombing shelter scene where they're kind of hiding as London's being bombed because they're you know in the suburbs outside of London. So you know how horrible it is. And us knowing um, US and, and British history and World War II history, we know how destroyed London got. And yeah. it's just like, if you want to do a story and really put people in, in the shoes of these characters and this, this world, why are we showing like the upper middle class who has this, I'm sorry, they have the easiest out of anyone who's in London or the surrounding area. Like people in, in London were either severely poor Or they were rich and they just left. So the poor people were just stuck there to be in, like, the underground to, like, hoping that they didn't collapse on them. Like, which is way more interesting if the whole film's about, like, how they literally could die at any point because they're trapped in the city that's constantly being bombed. Like, what was the purpose of showing this? And my opinion, it has to be because the majority of audiences that were going to film were probably middle class and upper class people. That has to be the reasoning. Yeah, I, I definitely think so, and, and it's definitely Americanized with the way the homes look
0: and the way sure it's like all set up. It's very the way that no one has
1: a British accent yeah. in the movie.
0: Yeah, you know, I think Greer Garson the only actual British or English person, and she doesn't even have a great accent <laughs> for it. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's such a it is weird. It is off base because this movie is supposed to be about getting everyone into it, and when a majority of a country is a poorer country or, or lower middle class. They can't really, you know, they can't really feel sorry for a family that's being waited and, you know, on hand and foot, uh, by you know house servants and, and all that. So it, it's just such a, it's it falls on deaf ears the way that it's all
1: portrayed and the way it all looked. Like they want to go the distance in showing how yeah. destroyed the house is by the end, but it's just like, it just feels half assed. Like the way yeah. that it shows that and it doesn't like want to dive deep into like how. Like sad it actually is, but let's like dive into an actual scene. I really like breaking it down. We usually, when we watch some of these movies, we like find so many great scenes that we want to talk about and dive into. <laughs> but watching this movie, it was like there's like three scenes that I want yeah, to talk about. Yeah, like, there's like there's
0: very little scenes in this movie that because the
1: the whole first hour is literally just setting up the family, setting up the rose, and how that's going to come back into play. Like, you know, letting Vin fall in love with this woman with a uh, Carol and as Teresa Wright. Yes. Falls in love with Carol Belden as Teresa Wright. Thank you, Ben. And they have like, you know, they're in a way it's it's a conversation that you would hear like nowadays, right? Where they're kind of like play fighting in a way. They're kinda of cutesy. Yeah. They're, you know
0: one of the notes I even wrote down, it felt like this is something I, I wrote down sophomore because I was thinking this is something that not a freshman in film school would make, <laughs> but a sophomore in film
1: school would make. Wait, what do you mean? Like their conversation? And yeah, relations? the
0: conversation and, and sort of like the, some of the shot choices. It's very, it's obviously, you know, the craft, but you're not doing it well enough where it's effective. It's just like you're going through the motions to make it, which I think is one of my criticisms about William Wyler in this is that there's nothing. To like sink your teeth into, which is the problem that we only have like three scenes to really sink our teeth into, and even that is like
1: barely even getting our teeth into it. Yeah, I mean, the whole beginning is like I said, setting up their characters, but they're so little that they're actually setting up. It's it's pretty dull and boring, and it's really hard to get into, and which is unfortunate because there are like really phenomenal scenes I think in this movie, and there's interesting scenes like when we first get almost over an hour into the movie at this point we get the first real conflict honestly it's an hour and 10 minutes into the movie it's the first time there's tension yeah well any conflicts really like i i guess you could say the conflict's like oh they have a relationship like will they won't they like will they be a couple with vin and uh carol like you have some of that that before and it's not really that much of a conflict you know what's going to happen you have the conflict of you know, Lady Belden not wanting the rose. And that's such a barely a conflict at all either. So it's not really into an hour and 10 minutes in this two-hour movie that we get this conflict where there's earlier murmurs about how like a a German fighter pilot was shot down and like no one knows where the plane really landed so they don't really know. And Mrs. Miniver kind of walks in her garden and sees the hand with the gun, which I think is a really compelling shot where it's like this kind of slow dolly into the hand on the ground with the gun. It starts out tense and
0: you actually... Yeah, you, know, you you all of a sudden you're like you you feel like an icy sensation. You're like, oh my god, like she's actually in danger right now. Like it's actually here, and you're physically gonna deal with it. And when you set up that your main character is gonna be confronted with a German soldier in their home, it's like, whoa, that's like really it's intense. It's intense and and it's interesting. But go on, because it doesn't play off as well.
1: No, I mean something I should mention too is that something that also is not very clear in the movie is that Clem mrs miniver's husband goes to dunkirk to essentially assist with a bunch of other civilians and we kind of see them entering that scene and then they go off and we see mrs miniver who's now with the german and there's this back and forth where he has the gun and he's like basically ordering her to give him things you know his arms look damaged he's asking for like food he's cold he wants a jacket and it the scene just doesn't go anywhere like immediately i was super excited cuz i was like oh, okay like this is what the movie is the husband's off at dunkirk like we're going to cut back and forth between dunkirk which is going to be really interesting because I know so much of that and I've seen Dunkirk and I've learned a lot about it over the over the kind of past five years and we're going to cut back and forth and this is going to be like crazy. We're going to have like the at-home battle where she's like stuck with this German and then we're going to have like the actual on the front lines with the husband. But that's not what the movie is no. at all. The scene with the German fighter lasts maybe five minutes. He falls asleep, I think, because he's really tired. You don't really yeah. say why. He's just exhausted because he's hurt and... You know, he probably hasn't slept in like days or something I don't. we don't know because they don't say or make that clear at all and she just calls the cops after taking the gun from him when he falls asleep so it's just like there's no point to the actual scene other than like that could have been dangerous or something bad could have happened
0: yeah and it this is where like the propaganda aspect of it comes in because again like there's no dialogue really from Mrs. Bennett from, from Georg Garson's character it's really mostly the German soldier who is barking orders at her and then at towards the end of the scene you know he's basically saying how they're going to just keep on decimating european countries uh he uses uh rotterdam one of the european cities that they destroy how like they killed thirty thousand people in in two hours and, and then mrs Midiver kind of responds like oh, i was women and children you're were, you're were getting rid of and how like you know we're not going to take that so there's like where that propaganda aspect comes in where it's like look what the germans are doing and now this is how we should respond like you know we can't let this happen like this is what they're Every
1: German is like this. Every German's gonna threaten your whole city. Yeah,
0: right. And then, so then, upon researching the film, you find out that that scene he was supposed to be a much softer character. He's supposed to be more sympathetic. You're supposed to feel sorry for him because he got kind of lost in the in the sauce, I guess, of 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 (laughs) German propaganda. German sauce. Yeah, yeah. And he and he joined the war for himself, not understanding it. So like that could have been an interesting and softer way to approach it. But they then decided to make it more like he's a rougher character and then i think what also is like the more frustrating thing and then the thing that makes it just not a good scene is that we know she's gonna be okay and i say that because from again from our modern perspective we know that leading ladies in old hollywood films are not going to just be killed off that was why in psycho uh when uh, I'm forgetting her name. Janet Lee. I, I'm forgetting her right now. Yeah, but but when she dies, that was like that was crazy. People didn't were like the the leading lady that you've been billing this whole time. She that dies. You sold the movie on right. Yeah. She dies 40 minutes into the film, and so so you know that so you know from our perspective, from a more modern take, that she's gonna be okay. She's not gonna die. So you just don't feel as intense about it because you understand. But it would have been great if he does hurt her. You know, or shoots her or something, and she like has to go into a coma, or, or yeah, or she does die, and then if he kind of takes on a whole new thing where like Mrs. Miniver is dead, and then you have Carol is like this new Mrs. Miniver, then you have the Mrs. Miniver Rose, so like maybe that
1: carries on her yeah, legacy, like that, yeah. that
0: builds it up more, but because we know she's gonna be okay, it it the the tension just then is lost, and then you just see right through the whole propaganda aspect of it.
1: Yeah, it's, it's just really frustrating. That's, like, the best way I can describe this movie because you see the potential. You're like, oh, my God, like, they're setting up this scene. Like, this is going to be really dramatic. Like, maybe she doesn't die. Like, she gets shot or they have this, like, great back and forth. And it's really just showing, you know, how evil he is, how evil the Germans were at the time and how, like, we all should be scared of them and we should all fight. And it really shows when the scene ends because he simply falls asleep. You know, he's, like, watching the front door, He has his gun. He's making her, like, stay back to make sure, like, he doesn't try to, she doesn't try anything. And he just falls asleep. It's like, could you think of a worse way to end of a scene about a German confronting a local, like, British woman in her house with a gun, like, threatening? It's like, oh, my God, like, this is setting up this genius. Like, this is why this movie won Best Picture. This is why this is so interesting because it makes this really, like, subtle, nuanced, like, relationship between the two of them. But, no, he literally falls asleep. He drops his gun. She grabs the gun, walks over, calls the police. He wakes up, and she's like, the police are coming. End of scene. And that literally ends (laughs) with Clem coming back, Walter Pidgeon coming back from Dunkirk. And then what? We don't see any Dunkirk. We see a bunch of miniature boats on the water, like, leading up to what would be Dunkirk. Either the film didn't have the budget, or it was about Miss Miniverse, so they didn't want to go and show that perspective. But then... Why even get to that point where they're in all the boats then, if you don't want to show anything?
0: Be oh, because they couldn't do it, I guess. Like I, I <laughs> like that's probably the only reason why. I mean, uh, they
1: did. It's just, like it just feels so half-assed. Like they did show it though. Like if you can show all those miniatures and all those boats, then why couldn't you just show them with like a couple explosions in the water? Like if you could go that far, why couldn't you just go all the way? Like I sometimes it's I forget, frustrating. Sometimes forget
0: that you haven't seen all these movies and then just knowing William Wyler and, and some of his later movies, you'll, you'll see some boat stuff. Okay. I'll just say it like some that good boat stuff. Yeah. You'll see, you'll see some boat stuff uh, in one of his later films. I won't say what, but uh, anyway, so yeah. So the scene just like kind of falls flat and then, yeah. And again, like Clem, like he hears the housemaid Ada say something about a German soldier. And he's like, Oh, what are you talking about? Then Kay, uh, his wife is just like, ah, nothing. That, don't worry about it. <laughs> and it's like, okay. Like, that's just it. Like, he had a freaking German soldier in his house, and you would think there'd be some sort of trauma there. Or some, like, is it like a, leftover tension? Is that a comedic bit? Like, yeah. I guess, like, they're, right? That's the thing. And that's another issue is that, you know, Greer Garson and Walter Pigeon don't really work well together. No, It's, it's like not
1: a good thing. Uh, maybe it's at the time too that they sleep in separate beds or it's like, is that a statement on their relationship or is that just common in, in Hollywood films at this point? Like, uh, Yeah, I think it's like a socialite thing you Yeah, be showing that. But I think it sets up though the like weird
0: uh, connections that Greer Garson has with another actor in this movie and that's Richard uh, Ney playing uh, their son Vin Miniver. And uh so just to to say it, like she so Greg Arson Garson Richard Nay got married a year later in 1943 after this movie was released. Richard Ney was 27 when they got married and Ger Garson was 39, I want to say. And uh, so which was like a whole like scandalous thing on the outskirts of it. So but then in this movie, because you're I'm assuming and it and it does seem very obvious that there's some sort of like flirtation whenever they're on the screen together, She's very touchy with Vin, you know, She's looks at him very affectionately, and it's just this very weird sexual tension between the mother and son in the movie that is there because the actor and actress in real life are
1: dating and, and screwing around probably with each other. Yeah, it's, it's disturbing. <laughs> yeah. You kept pointing it out, I mean, from our first, well, not really until after we finished because I didn't know that at all, and I didn't really get that, like... Weird sensation. I thought she was like an overly loving mom, and like this was her favorite kid because he was the eldest one. She's so very loving. She's very loving, and after you pointed it out, I could be like, okay, I could see this more and more. The way she's like constantly like smiling and staring at him, and like the way she's holding him as they walk down the stairs. Like there's, they even kiss at one point too. Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely odd knowing that now after the fact, but yeah it's right and let's get into
0: vin for a second because you did say that like no one really gives a bad performance and i kind of butted in there because i think vin gives a pretty shitty performance okay i I think think i think this is one of richard nay's like first films too and to me he tries to play this smooth and suave guy and i think he's trying to play like a humphrey bogart type of character where he thinks that he's that everything he does he like tries to like put himself in these like cool positions like like look at me, I'm Vin Miniver, and like, you know, uh, there's a scene where, uh, kind of where Vin and Carol like first really fall in love, in a sense. So they're like at this like party at a at a yacht club, I would say, and so Vin's standing out there on the dock, and he has his like leg up on one of the on one of the logs. He's just kind of just like looking out to the distance, trying to play off all cool, and the way he talks, he's like, you know, he's supposed to be from going to school at Oxford. He just comes off as such like a dick. And so everything he says, I'm just like, can you just shut the fuck up? And then all of his, <laughs> just all his whole like body and the way he moved around, just it just again just seemed like a very like, I'm trying to be like Humphrey Bogart, but I'm not Humphrey Bogart. I'm trying to be cool, but I'm not really that cool. I'm just very swarmy and, and you know, kind of like a, he's very rat like i just i don't like his performance <laughs> i think it's very odd and then when you add that in with like that he was dating greg arson and then doesn't really work with uh Teresa Wright and like that whole relationship it just doesn't it's such like a weird performance and,
1: and that was like the one thing that i didn't like and but he's also emphasized so much throughout the film yeah he's, he's kind of an important integral part even though he kind of like leaves and when he's in the air force that he kind of leaves and comes back here and there but to me, it was more like he was kind of like this nerdy guy. He's in Oxford. He's smart, but he's like trying to play the cool, suave, tough guy. And and that's kind of like the joke and where it's kind of like cute and funny with a relationship because Carol is like seeing through that. But I is mean, it supposed to be
0: a joke? Because that's I don't thing. know.
1: See, that's what it, that's where the filmmaking kind of feels poor to me because I don't know what they're going for. I don't know if that's what they're going for or am I reading into it or am I like adding things that just aren't there so I don't really know. And that just isn't a good thing, right? Like to not know what they're going for for a certain character. That could be on him. That could be on the direction. It, it's really hard to know. But like moving forward into the story, one of the best scenes, I, I would probably say the best scene in the movie is the scene in the bomb shelter yeah. where uh, London's constantly bombed, as we kind of explained. And I think it's one of the most like
0: tense scenes that we've seen. And it, I think it's very reminiscent of... Uh the foxhole scene and all yeah, the western front. Yeah, to bring, call that again, it, it brings up that same claustrophobia and, and the way it, it's shot. There's very minimal shot changes, or at least I shouldn't say like there's a lot of cuts in the edit, but there's not many different
1: yeah different shot angles, changes and yeah. angles,
0: exactly composition within it. And, and yeah, it's definitely the strongest part of, of the film itself.
1: And I think we see like the shining moments of their performances as like Walter Pigeon playing Clem, is like showing a really like endearing performance where he's like really scared himself but he's like trying to be comforting and we have miss miniver who's like being the more vocal one he's she's there kind of like comforting her kids so we do see some like pretty great performances and i think the kids are really great throughout the film and while this is going on at first they're like okay the bombs are in the distance it's shaking a little bit and then they progressively get closer and more and more tense so the it just keeps building up tension and building up tension, just waiting for that final bomb to kind of drop right on top of them. So it is really scary and in- intimidating and the kind of the way the scene is set up where we're kind of stuck in claustrophobic, like you said, Yeah. we're stuck inside there with them and you see all the different things they have and the cat and how Toby, the child <laughs> is like holding the cat's tail and then very well trained. Well, very well trained. And then when everything blows up, the cat's freaking out, the kids are crying. It felt very naturalistic and, and really intense and like i really felt for them and it's probably the first time in the movie where i'm like oh wow this is a real family like yeah god this is scary like i could see why this scene may stand out
0: yeah i, I agree i think that this scene if again we talk about all the time if you're going to show clips from a movie this is probably the scene you would show you know when you're announcing uh best picture and one of the things again as it builds up the scene so yeah, so you see london in the distant getting bombed one of my favorite details is that Walter Pigeon is smoking a pipe when he's standing outside, but he's smoking the pipe upside down. And when I first watched the movie, uh, initially I was like, "Why is he holding that?" And it took me a few minutes to like realize that. And watching it again, I kind of did that same like mind game thing, where I was like, "Why is he holding upside down?" And he's holding upside down so that Germans wouldn't see the embers from the nights from the from the sky down below, because they try to block out any sort of light, uh, you know, in London, so that no one can see anything from up from up high so i thought that was like a really cool detail and again it adds that tension it builds it up that like it's imminent it's about to happen and then when it does finally come when the bombs do start to fall on them it's great sound design i have to say definitely, i think yeah. it's some of the best sound design that we've seen or, or heard seen yeah. <laughs> that you know in the films that we have covered uh just because the way that they play around with where it's coming from it, it definitely felt like very surround sound and then the again like when a bomb would hit, you know the, the bunker would shake. The kids were very, give a great performance that you could you felt scared. You you felt like that yeah that they could eat it you know at any moment, but they don't. They get out of it. Uh, but it's one of the better scenes. And so then what it leads up to is then this uh, this big like rose competition that they had at the beginning of the movie, and now we're finally at that resolve. And so and this is probably the only other tense part uh, of the film is because. You find out that it's going to be Lady Belden's rose who's going to win. Lady Belden has been... It's held on her property of Belden Hall. She wins every year for her roses. And this year, you know, it's like, okay, here's this competition. It's the first time it's ever really happened. She's like, oh, my rose will win. And then when she does find out that it is her rose that is decided and judged as the winner, she, there's like this tense, you know, like 45 seconds where she's looking at between both roses. And it's like, should I announce it? Should I not? And she decides to say it's the other rose that won, the Mrs. Miniver rose by uh, Mr. Ballard, Henry Travers' character, and it's a really sweet moment. And, and that's where Lady Belladin's character does change, and it builds up that that social tension where it's like, is she going to do it? Is she not going to do it? And she does, and it's great. And then it's then comes the air raid sirens again, and then there's that war coming in. So again, it's an other propaganda type thing where it's like, okay, we can have a normal life, but in the backdrop we have this war. So as soon as like that is about to happen, we have to gather the troops to get everybody to safety, and and that's where more of that propaganda seeps right into the movie.
1: Yeah, there's a great line where Lady Belton, as soon as the alarms kick on, she's like, I'm sorry to disturb the harmony of this occasion, but our enemies are no respecters of flower shows, (laughs) which was like probably the funniest line, one of the only funny lines I thought in the whole movie. It was
0: that and the sweat sticker. Yes, (laughs) which is
1: hilarious. Who says that line? Uh, Remember
0: Gladys. So the housemaid, she... Talking about German. yeah, she has like this like very Cockney accent, and she starts. I forget the exact way she phrases it, but she she's like those Nazis and all their sweat stickers. And then you realize
1: she's saying swastikas, and she's just mispronouncing it yeah. awfully, you know. And before we get to like further down the line when we talk about Carol's death, I think we have to talk a little bit about the kids. And I think specifically, I mean, I don't think the daughter has much, but Toby, the younger son, played by uh, Christopher Severn, he's interesting because he's almost used the most i think in this film as like a tool for propaganda in a weird way where it's just like yeah Yeah. little boys love guns and they love shooting guns but no one in the film is more gun ho about there being a war than this tiny little boy yeah (laughs) and it's like it's it's disturbing and kind of funny in a weird way because he's constantly like mimicking shooting machine guns and how he wants to go to war with his brother vin and I guess it's supposed to kind of like flip it on its head when he's in the bomb shelter and he's screaming and crying because it's disturbing, but it's just, it kind of feels uncomfortable that they're using the child to be like, don't worry, like kids that are watching this movie, like war is good, like your your brother who's going off to war that may <laughs> die and never see him again, like don't worry, he's doing the right thing, it's going to be good, like, I don't know, what you, do you think about the kids in this film? yeah I, I found them annoying honestly <laughs> yeah I mean I, honestly I, some of their lines are like so yeah, irritating I, I think that yeah it, it's cute
0: I I think that to read that much into it is maybe giving them too much credit <laughs> you know I think it it adds that depth to it it adds that like oh little boys love war but at the end of the day I'm not watching this movie to be rallied up about World War 2 I'm trying to watch this movie to to fit it in with other best picture winners and so that performance Just doesn't really do enough for me It's like okay And then yeah You completely lose What's her name Judy Because she doesn't say anything In the movie Barely anything yeah. And then like One of the final shots That you see The family in The, the church She's completely blocked off By another actor You don't even you see don't her You not even see her yeah. So she's like Not even important to the film So I get why You know Yeah They're, they're there And, and it's it, he's like a funny character. He and he kind of uh, the one thing he does do is he prompts Vin to propose to Carol. Yeah, which
1: and, not on one knee. Yeah, not on one
0: knee. Weird. It's very out there and it's cute because he's like, oh, when he's like, why is Vin gonna marry Carol? He's <laughs> like, right now, <laughs> <laughs> right now, right. <laughs> and then, and well, that's the other thing. And like he proposes to her, and then a minute later, he's getting called to go fight
1: and say goodbye. Well, and, I mean, I guess that's the times and yeah, you know. which. It's like I don't
0: whatever, but I think before we even talk about Carol's death, let's just briefly talk about Carol herself and Teresa Wright. Sure, because she she's good. She I think she's she's she's, she's good sweet, in this. Yeah, I she's think. sweet. She um she calls out vin's bullshit, which I yeah like a lot. yeah she she definitely you know whereas Vin is like I think she's very idealistic and and opportunistic and I think she gives one of the the more heartfelt performances and moments is when she's talking to Kay and saying that even though I just married your son and you know, and how much I love him, I know that he's probably going to die soon in this war and I'm okay with that. So it's this idea of about love and and in a time of war and a time of darkness, how that can be battled through and how that can be looked upon by these characters and kind of embracing it in a way. So I like that. I think she gives some other good, you know moments and lines and i think she does does it better in some other movies later on even a movie from the same year that she's good but uh i think she's she gives a sweet performance and then so then what happens after she gives this whole speech about that she's okay that vin's gonna die at some
1: point is then she dies <laughs> unexpectedly and out of nowhere <laughs> on the way home on the, the flower home. show as there's you know fighter pilots i guess just shooting at civilian cars yes yeah. which- I guess that happened. I don't really know too much about the history. I'm assuming if they were bombing towns, they were also just you know flying over and shooting at anything. Yeah,
0: I think that part of it, I don't know if they intentionally shot at the car. I think of that the, they were just shooting in the air. In and the it, air. And it. then as that German fighter was coming down, I think he That's just... That's
1: what I also thought. But then thinking about that, it's just like, then why not keep driving? Because you think you're going to get shot at if you're like a moving target and they see you. Well, I don't know. Yeah, like, cuz well, she just, stops specifically. She's like, "Oh, it's safer if I stop and like we stay here."
0: Well, that's one of the flaws in in the directing is that it doesn't really make sense. Like that doesn't make any sense. Like why would like why and she's also
1: driving very slowly. It's also like just a poor decision for a film to be like, "You know what? This could be an epic chase scene where like they're dodging fire from planes and like they're constantly running and it's really like she could still die, but it's like way more intense and she's like driving so she doesn't yeah. even notice she's shot, you know? Like Yeah. It's just like, why would you do this? Like, yeah, yeah. it's just a worse decision than anything else you could have done, just to have them park. Yeah, it it really doesn't do much. It
0: it's a cool little moment because you get to see some actual fighting,
1: and so maybe that was like where their budget could go to. You it know? was definitely in, in, it definitely tense because like they're there and like you hear all the great sound design that's kind of happening, and it is similar again to All Quiet on the Western Front, where I'm forgetting the character's name, but when he dies. um one of the main soldiers at the end he dies from the explosion right i think think it's cat and he's like holding him on his back and there's something really compelling about like someone being hurt or just dying and like the other character doesn't really know yeah and like you from the audience perspective like you know something's wrong and you're there with the character to kind of figure out that revelation like that's really compelling and really interesting but like again what does this movie do it just drops the ball it doesn't do it correctly it builds up that tension where you're like, wait. Why is Carol? Oh shit! Like she's she's shot. Like you see kind of blood. You don't really see it. Like you just know that she's shot. And then what happens? She gets taken home. Yeah, and like Miss Miniver doesn't want to look at the wound. Doesn't want to address it. Like not even like acknowledge that she's shot. Like just she's laying on the ground and that's it. Yeah, she well
0: she like tries to call an ambulance. I don't think the flaw is in that is in her getting shot and like them drop they they drop the ball in the sense that they. It did, the setup doesn't make any sense like why would they be driving slowly why wouldn't they yeah well, i just think they dropped the ball in like
1: the scene like yeah. the scene doesn't work like there's interesting aspects to it but again the scene doesn't work because one why is carol killed what does that add to the plot what does that it add just, to the yeah, story it or adds the themes that, of the arc nothing well it adds the idea that anyone can eat it <laughs> yeah well, that's the all fact together. that you're watching this it's scary you don't want your freaking wife to die so you should go fight in the war like that's yeah. all that it does Right. again it just pushes you to feel a certain way to then go and do something which again it's a it's a propagandist film it's hard not to see it in so many of these scenes but if you're at least going to do it like sell it more like why would <laughs> why would Miss Miniver not like address it or like even look at the wound like it's so unhuman yeah. for someone to be injured in any way and to be like when I look at it like we should put something on the wound like it's moronic yeah to like not even look or like attempt to help the person like your first thought is to just drive home set her on the fucking ground and just call someone like you don't want to somewhat help the situation yeah, drive Ian? to the hospital or just drive to the fucking hospital yeah. it makes no sense it just it's well, so frustrating
0: what it does give is a very intense death for Carol because you see the way it's lit and it's like in the dark and yeah her body just like shudders and then she dies and yeah like that
1: was a good again it's really intense too because she walks away right and then she dies so it's just like a really dramatic you're from the viewer point of view you're like waiting for the main character to see this because you already know what happened so there's that tension there but it's just like why are you making these other decisions it's so frustrating she wanted to fuck her son herself (laughs) god
0: <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i don't know and uh it's being facetious right there but yeah it, it just doesn't it doesn't work and then the movie ends with again another drop the ball moment so they're in the church and this movie is called mrs miniver you're kind of waiting for that big oscar moment for girk arson and it's just not there and instead the big oscar moment that everyone rallies around that president roosevelt at the time got you know publications to print this speech that th- <laughs> that the vicar reads or says is said by the vicar and not by mrs miniver so you have this character that we saw once before at the way beginning of the film when she's buying the hat she sees the vicar and then see i didn't even remember that yeah like i only knew that because i had just you know i was like going through the movie today and i was like skimming through i was like oh yeah they did me at the beginning But anyway, so it's like said by this person who has nothing to give that I didn't give anything else to the story. And you're just like, okay, like, I don't care. Um, But I guess I care enough to at least redo part of the the speech. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, so basically the, the vicar starts talking about how like how these the recent bombings had decimated the town. He says that Mr. Ballard, he died only an hour after getting his rose, which like,
1: what the fuck? Like, why that, not show that?
0: Yeah, why not show that? You know, that's really sad. And then he touches upon how uh, Carol died and how it affects two families. Just like all these sacrifices that these people make, and so he he ends the speech by saying this about their sacrifices that people make. He says, "I shall tell you why, because this is not only a war of soldiers in uniform; it is the war of the people of all the people." And it must be fought not only on the battlefield, but in the cities and in the villages, in the factories and on the farms, in the home and in the heart of every man, woman and child who loves freedom. Well, we have buried our dead, but we shall not forget them. Instead, they will inspire us with an unbreakable determination to free ourselves and those who come after us from the tyranny and terror that threaten to strike us down. This is the people's war. It is our war. We are the fighters. Fight it then. Fight it with all that is in us and may God defend the right very patriotic and very in your face propaganda you can tell that i'm sure when people saw this and uh in the movie theaters they were like fuck yeah america and like all that and like cool good at the end of the day for us watching this movie we don't get that same sense as we said before and then the speech is given by someone we don't care about and if this was like mrs miniver who is like I have something to say and, and goes in front of like the church audience and, and says this. And it's about Carol's death. It's yeah, about her son who's fighting in war. like yeah. Or even if Vin said this, the, I think it would have been more impactful than the vicar <laughs> yeah. saying this. No,
1: definitely. It's it's just not thinking about what could be a good film and it's thinking about what could be a better message to influence yeah. people. And it's clear that that's all the film wants to do. It like doesn't want to spend the time... To dig deep into these characters, their ideology and their thoughts, it just simply wants to send that message and end you with like a rally cry to be like, "Go, you can do this, and you can fight for us, even if you're not in the front lines. You can still fight for our country, whether it's you know the UK or if it's the United States of America who joined soon after." It's just like, I want to see a film, like I want to see yeah. a movie about interesting characters that have an interesting story, like give us you can do both i think it's very possible to do both and i think there's a lot of films that people would call propaganda that still tell a really interesting compelling story yeah i certainly agree and and i think that we will see
0: some of those films not too you know far in advance of like you know far in advance i don't even know i don't even know what i'm saying because i'm so like frustrated by this film i think that it really drops the ball in, in many aspects uh, which is actually kind of funny because the first time I watched this, I liked it, and I don't remember why. You I liked, liked it, it a lot. I liked it a lot, and, I, and now having
1: rewatched it, I'm sort of... It's confused. Just, yeah, <laughs> confused.
0: <laughs> I don't know what what I was thinking the first time I watched that, but...
1: It's like a cherry on top, the way the film ends. Yeah. With a, a, you know, a title card coming up saying, America needs your money, buy defense bonds, and stamps every payday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is like, one, wow. That's... That's crazy. It's it's kind of like it's sad in a way because you're like yeah. fuck. Like the fact that this even had to be made, it's just like that. That's how low we were at at a point. in Society across the globe, really. Yeah. About how desperate it was, but it's also that's like the purpose of the film is. It to, shows you clearly that yeah. this is what this is for. You. We finish with this grand speech declaring anyone can fight. Here's what you can yeah. do to help. You know what I mean? Like it feels like a commercial. The way a commercial would end, yeah. right? Like call this number.
0: Yeah, yeah ex- exactly. And I said before that uh Roosevelt uh Franklin Roosevelt at the time took this speech and had it printed by I think Life and and Time Magazine and like any publication you can get had this speech at the end publicized so everyone could see it, which probably is what helped the movie become the biggest box office success of 42. Yeah. It got 5.38 million at the box office at that time, which is kind of a lot. And uh it just does a lot for like the war effort and as a propaganda film and it just it's odd. It, it is odd to, to be watching it from this current time, but I get why it would be important for, for that time. So is there really anything else that we should touch on about this movie? Because I think we hit the major parts of it.
1: I think we had everything really that we needed to. I think really the only thing left using our 100-point scale, calling this a propaganda film or propagandist film, out of zero being there's no propaganda in this <laughs> propagandist film... At 100 being the most propaganda ever, what would you give, Miss Miniver, on a propaganda scale? I uh, I think a n- 95.
0: I think wow, 90, you think uh, it's that high? I think yeah, I think most of the film is supposed to be propaganda, and like that five percent is where there's some change in that, but it's all meant to be about the war effort and, and what you can do. Yeah, like I don't see it team. as any other way. The conversations that the characters have are all centered around. You know, your life and your legacy, and building that up, and then building up like what you could do in the war, and just this like ordinary life, which is what makes it a boring film because you don't care about a lot of this stuff, and then, and then, and then when you do care about some of the stuff, it's just not like that
1: good. And I I think it's very I I don't know what you're what you think it's supposed I was gonna to. say like an eighty because the majority of it like we spoke is spoken about like it's it's aimed to send a message and to tell you what the creators and the producers want you to think and how to promote and really support the war. But there's like that 20% where I can't really tell, like, is it what they're going for? Like, are they actually trying to tell a compelling story with the Rose and the difference of like how much you're changed? And like, is there something I think there the, that I'm missing? I think the Rose has to be some
0: sort of propaganda. Like there's beauty still to be had type yeah. of thing in the world and how that will, how that will thrive. And, There's all these things, I guess, at home that can ground you and, you know, using your garden is was because that's like a land. That's an important. Yeah. yeah. Because having land, having your own garden, I, I think like that's supposed to be very political. But I don't think it works well is what I would say. So that's Mrs. Miniver. That's kind of our thoughts and feelings about it.
1: So let's jump into the 15th Academy Awards. The 15th Academy Awards were held on March 4th, 1943 in the Coconut Grove at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, California. It was hosted by Bob Hope, and a portion of the ceremony was broadcasted by CBS Radio. Now, since we spoke so much about propaganda film propagandist war films and themes, I wanted to just note that some of the nominated 1942 films included, propagandist films included, obviously, Miss Miniver, Yankee Doodle, Dandy, Wake Island, The Invaders, The Pied Piper, To the Shores of Tripoli, This Above All, and The Fleets Inn. And that's only to name a few. There are even more than that. And that really shows just how much Hollywood and how much, you know, so many of these producers and directors are fueling and wanting to push out these messages of these propaganda films. So I wanted to at least acknowledge that and acknowledge that Miss Miniver had a total of 12 nominations. And this is the first movie to receive Five acting nominations at the Academy Awards. Academy Honorary Awards. The Irving
0: G. Thalberg Memorial Award was given to Sidney Franklin. Uh, In 1933, Sidney Franklin, a producer and director at MGM, purchased the film rights to Felix Salton's novel Bambi, A Life in the Woods, intending to adapt it as a live action film. After years of experimentation, he eventually decided that it would be too difficult to make such a film, and he sold the rights to Walt Disney in April 1937 and stayed on as a creative consultant. And he also produced Mrs. Miniver. So this category starts to go to like the producers who would go on to win uh, Best Picture, it seems like. But yeah, so Sidney Franklin got it this year. He helped make Bambi, which is a pretty great movie. Other Academy Honorary Awards went to Charles Boyer for his progressive cultural achievement in establishing the French Research Foundation in Los Angeles as a source of reference for the Hollywood motion picture industry Another honorary award went to Noel Coward for his outstanding production, Achievement in *In Which We Serve, which is a 1942 British patriotic war film directed by Coward and David Lean. It was made during World War II with the assistance of the Ministry of Information. And then a third honorary award went to Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer for its achievement in representing the American way of life in the production
1: of the Andy Hardy series of films. Best special effects goes to Reap the Wild Wind. Photographic effects by Forcied Edouard, Gordon Jennings, and William Pariah. Sound effects by Luis Messenkop. This is a Cecil B. DeMille film, his second movie to be filmed in color. Edouard and Jennings won the previous year in the same category for I Wanted Wings. Best film editing went to The Pride of the Yankees, Daniel
0: Mendel. Uh, This is the only win for the Pride of the Yankees out of 11 total nominations this year, which was the second most behind Mrs. Miniver. Mendel is one of the four film editors to win three best film editing Oscars, which is the most all time. He would also go on to win for the two best picture winners, the best years of our lives and The Apartment. Uh, I actually watched the Pride of the Yankees a few days ago. It was a movie that I've always wanted to see, and I'm not a Yankees fan, I'm a Mets fan, but lou gehrig i know the whole story you know lou gehrig's disease and the speech that he gives and i really wanted to see it and i actually really agree with this win it's a fast-paced film it's a it's a biopic and it actually does a, a pretty good job going through gehrig's life it's not this like perfect you know biopic but i think it's actually a pretty uh it's pretty well told in the fast paced there's these really good transitions that they do throughout the film showing going from city to city you know going through this like baseball season and it, it's just really well put together. And the speech at the end that Gary Cooper gives is Lou Gehrig. It's a very famous speech. Um, and it's I w- really well put together. They use some um, some like projection effects in the back to kind of help Cooper, I think, get through it. And just the way it's all pieced together, really well done. I really I really like this movie a lot. And it's actually the one of the few non-World War II movies, propaganda movies of this year. And I think that it, I think it deserved more. And um, I know you didn't get to see it, but I would definitely encourage people to see it. And also to start Teresa Wright in it. And she was phenomenal uh, as Mrs. Garrick in it as well. So uh, the pride of the Yankees getting that film editing award.
1: I mean, any movie about baseball, I'm down. Totally be willing <laughs> to watch it. I think it's the best sport for film. I will also mention that Mrs. Miniver is in this film category uh, or in this film editing category. I don't really see why the editing would be kind of there. No, it's not. I I don't, I don't know. I think it's one of those things where they're like, it's one of the films that are nominated a lot. Might as well throw it in one of those categories. Yeah,
0: 100%.
1: Best Cinematography Color goes to The Black Swan by Leon Shamroy. This is Shamroy's first of four total Academy Awards in this category, and he is tied with Ruttenberg for the most ever. So, Ben, do you know that much about The Black Swan? Because I know... The Black Swan. I don't remember the year. Two thousand eight is one of your favorite films. Two thousand ten. Two thousand ten. Yeah. Uh Yeah. It. It is, is one related. It. Like, is no. it a ballerina story about the Black Swan? Because I know that's a really old. No. Know, when I looked show. up
0: this movie, it said it was a swashbuckling thriller. <laughs> so I think mm. it has more to do with uh, the sea and all that, not beautiful ballet dances and, <laughs> and
1: Natalie Portman just fucking killing it. <laughs> that's like that's a, a. That's, a, that's a, a
0: great acting performance. That's a
1: really old like. I don't want to call it Broadway. I don't know what to call it. Ballerina, it, dancing. It's a, I, don't, I don't know it's what like the a, word is. I don't want to call it. I guess it's a ballet. The yes, the song. ballet. That's the word I'm looking it's a, for. It's a Duh. ballet. It's not like an op Yeah. But that's a, a really old story, right? Like, doesn't yeah. that go way back in just maybe vaudeville or early 1900s? So it I might be even it, older than that, right? I think
0: it's like Mozart. Mozart. <laughs> type of days yeah I I,
1: I thought it was like the first adaptation on film yeah I first saw the black swan just the name obviously
0: (laughs) yeah no I I don't know much about the actual story and history of the black swan but it's a pretty old uh old story and performance but moving on being a ruttenberg best cinematography black and white went to mrs miniver joseph ruttenberg uh this is ruttenberg's second of four total academy awards in this category and he's tied with leon Shamroy for the most ever he previously won in 1938 for the great Walt. So really cool and interesting that the two guys who would go on to win the most cinematography awards would be win the same exact year. I thought it was very interesting. Uh, but let's talk about the cinematography of Mrs. Miniver for a second. Cause
1: I don't get it. Why did it win? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, there are a couple cool shots with like the Dunkirk miniatures and some of, uh, you know the planes flying down and There's fighting a good like pushing during the german uh yeah there's some cool scenes. camera movements but it's really just that first hour of the movie where it's just like this is so simple and it the even the cinematography is not even like trying to do anything that's out there I mean, it it's, looks
0: good it's not like a bad there's nothing
1: looking... bad about the cinematography it's it's not like dull or just stationary you know there's movement and some cool dolly movements and stuff like that but yeah i don't really see i mean you've seen we haven't seen any of those movies, but you've seen the Pride of the Yankees. Like, is their cool cinematography, and that, with that being a baseball movie, yeah, do do I, th- cool I think Yeah, that? I think it does a lot of cool things with that. The production design of that movie,
0: it, it's really helped by it. But it also is one of those movies too, where it is helped by what's going on around it. It's a little bit static, just like Mrs. Miniver. So that's why it's really. But like, I guess, like, yeah, you would only get this. It would only get this win because of its popularity. And people were really into it. Maybe the bunker scene was something that people really latched onto because that was like, very compelling. But again, there's we see some really beautiful films. This is not one of those beautiful films. I would put this at the lower tier
1: of cinematography that we've seen so far. Best art direction for interior decoration and color goes to My Gal Sal. Art direction by Richard Day and Joseph C. Wright. Interior decorations by Thomas Little. This film starred Rita Hayworth and Victor Mature as the 1890 composer and singer duo Sally Elliott and Paul Dresser. This was Day's fourth out of seven total wins in this category.
0: Best Art Direction Interior Decoration Black and White goes to This Above All Art Direction by Richard Day, Joseph C. Wright, and Interior Direction by Thomas Little. So this was Day's fifth out of seven total wins in this category. He had won the previous year for How Green Is My Valley, and also he won in the award before for Interior Decoration Color. Joseph C. Wright, he would only claim these two Oscars from this year, while Thomas Little would go on to win three more for a total of six uh, for production design. So not the most, but six Oscars. And so I looked up how common was it in the production design category while they had split it to black and white and color uh, that someone won twice in the same year, and it happened again in 1950. Of hans dreyer he won for both in uh both color and black and white uh art direction uh so joining days the only people to do that and this film was also set during world war ii starring tyrone power and joan fontaine falling in love in england as the war is starting so we have this other we have another world war ii and that one was this above all
1: best sound recording goes to nathan levinson for yankee doodle dandy This is Levinson's only Oscar win out of 24 nominations between Best Sound Recording and Best Special Effects. He worked on The Life of Emile Zola from 1937 and A Streetcar Named Desired from 1951. So it's interesting here because one of the things that we spoke about, about Mrs. Miniver, Douglas Shearer, we've seen his name pop up over and over again in in this category and throughout the the past history. So do you think it's because he's won so many times that Mrs. Miniver didn't get the win here? Or do you think that Yankee Doodle Dandy just has that good of music?
0: Yeah, I think that it was probably the Yankee Doodle Dandy musical aspect of it. And it was such a popular film. A lot, you know, Mrs. Miniver was popular too. Uh, but I actually think that there's some merit and reason to give it to Mrs. Miniver for this. Again, like we talked about the sound design during the bunker scene was really good and impactful. And, I don't think sound design is where it's at today. I mean, when you go into a movie theater now, it, it completely envelops and, and surrounds you. Um, but I thought that Mrs. Miniver, I thought it was a pretty good sound design, sound job by Douglas Shear. But again, maybe Shear has won so many. Nathan Levinson's a different name. You can do little dandies that musical of the year. So I could definitely see that uh, as the reason for why it won. Best original song went to White Christmas from Holiday Inn, music and lyrics by Irving Berlin. The film starred Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire. The song that would become White Christmas was conceived by Berlin on the set of the film Top Hat in 1935. He hummed the melody to Astaire, and the film's director, Mark Sandwich, as a song possible for a future Astaire, Ginger Rogers' vehicle. Astaire loved the tune, but Sandrick passed on it. Uh, Then Berlin's assignment for Paramount was to write a song about each of the major holidays of the year. He found that writing a song about Christmas was the most challenging because he was Jewish. When Crosby first heard Berlin play White Christmas in 1941 at the first rehearsals for the film, he did not immediately recognize his full potential. And Crosby simply said, I don't think we have any problems with that one, Irving. And of course, it's very popular among Bing Crosby fans. It's a popular Christmas song. Uh, for those to celebrate Christmas. But yes, that's White Christmas winning it. Best original song.
1: I think White Christmas is one of the best, if not the best Christmas song <laughs> of all time. So I'm I'm a huge fan of this song. Not so much of Holiday Inn. I, I think White Christmas, the film White Christmas is much better than Holiday Inn. I, I love, adore that movie. It's one of those Christmas movies I watch every year. But yeah, come on! How can you not love White Christmas? As as a Jew yourself, Ben, you still gotta <laughs> yeah, love writ- White Christmas. Written
0: by a Jew, yeah, it's a it's a good song. I uh, I I don't want to shit on people's love for Christmas music, but I th- I find it odd when people really are really into Christmas music during Christmas. Like it's the only thing you listen to. Like, come on, put in a little uh, a
1: little ACDC, a little Metallica to spice it up a little bit. Best scoring of a musical picture goes to Ray Heindorf and Heinz Rumhild for Yankee Doodle Dandy. Heindorf was born in Haverstraw, New York, which is where Ben grew up. Hi. It's kind of (laughs) where I grew up. (laughs) He received a total of 18 nominations between 1943 to 1969 uh, between the category scoring and best song. This is his first of three wins. Uh, He would later win for This Is the Army in 1943 and The Music Man in 1962. Best
0: scoring of a dramatic or
1: comedy picture
0: went to Now Voyager to Max Steiner. Uh, This is the second year of the categories being distinguished between dramatic comedy and musical picture. Uh, We didn't really touch upon it last episode uh, about this change, but uh, I figured bring it up now. But this is Steiner's second of three total Oscar wins. He won previously for The Informer. And he would go on to win for Since He Went Away in 1944. Uh, Steiner's other works includes Casablanca, King Kong, The Searchers, and Gone with the Wind. And we talked about how beautiful Steiner's music was for Gone with the Wind. And how it probably would have won any other year, but it was going against The Wizard of Oz, which is probably one of the best, top five best musical scores of all time.
1: So Steiner got his uh, second award, though, this year best short subjects cartoon goes to walt disney another one for defure's face yeah so i actually watched this one and uh
0: for those who might know not know what fear's face is you might know the popular meme uh of donald duck reading mind oh comp which i had seen all over the place and i'm like why the fuck is he reading that and then i was like when i found out that this is was from the film that it was from. I was like, Oh, that makes complete sense. So, uh, face is a Donald duck, uh, starring vehicle that it's a nightmare for him as he, he wakes up and he finds himself in Nazi Germany as a factory worker. And he's forced to go in to help, uh, the, the, the Germans and, and making bombs and how he just doesn't like it. You know, Donald duck has to, uh, you know, have rations throughout the film. You know, it, I think it's actually, I don't know what uh, Taika Waititi was thinking when he wrote Jojo Rabbit, but if he wasn't thinking of this movie, then it's just like a very random coincidence. So some of the things that they do in DeFure's face, I think actually is echoed in Jojo's Rabbit, like how they would always salute Hitler. Whenever someone would start doing it, everyone had to do it. And this movie, anytime you see an, an image of Hitler, uh, everyone, including Donald Duck, would say, Heil Hitler. So you have this this Donald Duck, uh, voice just going "Hi Hitler, Hi Hitler, Hi Hitler" every time he sees it, and it's, it's funny. And the idea is that it's poking fun at Germans and their propaganda and how silly that they look with all their swastikas everywhere. Even though, and at the same time, their you know their citizens are being treated like crap because they have to ration everything. Their clothing, uh, is made out of like paper bags almost, and they're kind of portrayed as buffoons. But there is some major issue with this in this because they depict the a Japanese man dressed as a Nazi and it's not a very flattering portrayal of a Japanese or Asian person. They have large buck teeth, their skin is very yellow. actually it's almost greenish in a way uh, so it's not it's not very favorite. Uh, it's not very appropriate and a nice portrayal of an Asian person, but th- that's one of the things about <laughs> racism is that you know that's the has been there this whole time but anyways uh it's a very funny film it's a only like eight minutes long and you can really get to understand like how americans were using cartoons to fight off uh nazis and how to give their own kind of propaganda it's uh very well thought out
1: did you watch this on uh disney plus no (laughs) not even look Wait, at you're going to tell me that this isn't on Disney Plus? I, th- I think it's a. Yeah, obviously, I, I think there'd be reasons why you want to be on Disney Plus. Yeah, I call bullshit Disney. <laughs> um, Disney, you said you're going to open the vault. Actually, open the vault and release everything show on it, Disney Plus. I, I'll
0: look right now on Disney Plus, but I didn't. I searched for it on on YouTube because I didn't think that it would actually be on there. Because there is not a chance that this is on Disney Plus. Yeah, I didn't think because There's of, no because way. of the Asian portrayal. I didn't think, but let's see. There's diff-
1: no way. There's no way. Not even even if it didn't have that nah. like racist aspect, I don't think they would show it nah. just simply based on the swastikas, nah. the Nazi references. Well,
0: that's the thing is like. It, so that's like another interesting thing About swastikas and seeing it Because they would They make a joke of it In Mrs. Miniver The whole joke in Into Fear's Face Is kind of like there, there are swastikas everywhere And Nazis use swastikas And everything It's like that kind of propaganda But now when we see it now It's a very horrifying image So that yeah we You wouldn't expect it to be On a kid's platform Like Disney Plus Um, So I get it Why why wouldn't it be there On Disney Plus But it's the only Donald Duck Short to win an Oscar So Go Donald. Good on that. Yeah, good on that. But it is. I would definitely recommend people to go see it because it's
1: a very interesting cartoon. And animation. it's an interesting way of how different propaganda films yeah, can be too. exactly.
0: Best live action short subject, Too Real, went to Beyond the Line of Duty from Warner Brothers. So this is a reenacted the real life of USA Army Corps Captain Hewitt T. Shorty Wheels. Uh, it's one of the many propaganda films the U.S. started to put out after Pearl Harbor and it was considered a success for recruiting people to join the war effort. So again, another short, another propaganda film. This was probably shown before many movies, and people were just constantly being subjected to propaganda. This, all over you know their entire uh, American lives at this time.
1: Best live action short subject one reel goes to Paramount for "Speaking of Animals and Their Families." This is part of the "Speaking." of animals short series that use special effects to make it seem like animals were talking and i found this interesting because i would have assumed that disney would have been one of the early kind of pioneers of making animals talk since they're you know at this point we have bambi and we have uh pinocchio all these things with uh inanimate objects or animals talking thinking that oh you know disney would probably be the one and Ben and I grew up in the late 90s, early 2000s, where it was really common for us to see like kids' films about yeah. talking animals. You know, Homeward Mound and Air Bud, all these films about- Babe. Babe, exactly, about talking animals. You wouldn't really think Paramount, because what has Paramount done in the last like 25 years about talking animals? Nothing. I don't think anything, really. No. Prove us wrong. Let us know.
0: Best documentary went to the Battle of Midway, United States Navy, Kokoda Frontline, the Australian News and Information Bureau, Moscow Strikes Back from Art Kino and Prelude to War, the United States Army Special Services. What? Yep. It was a four-way tie for the Best Documentary category. Uh, it's the only time that this happened in Oscar history where four films tied. There were 25 total nominees in this category, which is pretty surprising. But we did touch upon this last episode. The category was kind of played around with the previous few years. This year became a singular category, you know, so not really distinguishing between short subject and and a feature uh, documentary um, like they would the years before and what they would do in the years following. Um, But all four of these films, John, can you guess the common theme? (laughs) Uh, Are they about war? Yep, they're about World War II. (laughs) Uh, So two of them actually being about U.S. allies, Russia and Australia. So Prelude to War is a Frank Capra's film, part of the Why We Fight film series. Komodo Frontline was the first Australian film to win an Oscar, actually. And then uh, Moscow Strikes Back was about about Russian soldiers fighting uh, Germany on the Eastern Front in Europe uh, or I guess the Western front for them but Eastern front for Europe however you want to call it that so that's what all four of these movies have in common again more propaganda more World War II action
1: best original motion picture story goes to Emric Pressburger for 49th Parallel this is a film about German soldiers who are forced to flee across Canada this was used as a propaganda film and focus on the ideals of Nazis who are just simply not welcomed Pressburger hoped to use the ideas of propaganda against the Nazis, who had been employing propaganda in propaganda films for years.
0: Yeah, this is actually one of the movies that I was really interested in. I read the plot summary for this just because I wanted to know more about it, and finding out that it was focused on German soldiers was very interesting to me. That was an, I I think it's an interesting perspective to play on at this time, and for it to win an Oscar, especially for Best Original Motion Picture Story it it piques my interest a little bit just to see w- how this movie is played out on the screen even though i know how it ends and how it it ultimately goes through uh, its story but um i i i, w- I would definitely want to see it but i also wanted to touch on again my frustration with the best original motion picture story is because the pride of the Yankees in, is in this and it's about luke eric That's a real thing like that was a real story so how can you say that's an original story for a motion picture? It's an adapted thing. It it, it happened. I, so this is where I get very confused and I don't like that there's this third story category. It should just be, again, screenplay, uh, original and adapted screenplay. D- just my two cents on that. Best screenplay went to Mrs. Miniver, George Froschel, James Hilton, Claudine West, and Arthur Wimperis Based on the Mrs. Miniver newspaper columns by, Str- by Jan Struther. Uh, which again was kind of put in its own little book, so it's the only Oscar win for all four of these screenwriters. They would all go on to receive multiple nominations throughout their career. John, do you think Mrs. Miniver should have won Best Screenplay?
1: No, because I just don't enjoy the story enough, and I don't think the characters have that much of a progression and you know arc throughout their story. I don't think the film really ends with in a satisfying in a satisfying way that would say yeah overall that was you know a great story that had great elements and characters and dialogue therefore i don't think it was really a great screenplay and not worthy of deserving this award
0: yeah i don't think it was deserving it's probably only getting this because of the speech at the end because it was so well known and publicized and uh There's just nothing. There's nothing a
1: substance for these actors to really sink their teeth into. Yeah, I'm sure it's based on that speech, you know, and it was probably maybe like played on the radio and and pushed heavily. I mean, we talked about how uh, Roosevelt even spoke about it often. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't I wouldn't give it to it. But what do I know? Best original screenplay goes to Michael Cannon and Ring Lardner Jr. for Woman of the year this is spencer tracy and katherine hepburn led film produced by joseph l minkowitz lardner jr would also go on to win for adapted screenplay for mash in 1970. best supporting actress goes to
0: Teresa wright for mrs miniver as carol belden so this was wright's first win and third nomination within the last two years of 1941 and 1942 She had been nominated for The Little Foxes in 1941 for Best Supporting Actress. Wright is the first out of only nine actors who have been nominated in both categories in the same year. Uh, Her three Academy Award nominations and one Academy Award in her first three films is unique. Uh, She remains the only performer to have received Academy Award nominations for her first three films. Her contract on when signing with Samuel Goldwyn Said The aforementioned Teresa Wright shall not be required to pose for photographs in a bathing suit unless she is in the water. Neither may she be photographed running on the beach with her hair flying in the wind, nor may she pose in any of the following situations in shorts, playing with a cocker spaniel digging in a garden, whipping up a meal, attired in firecrackers and holding the skyrockets for the 4th of July, looking at a turkey for Thanksgiving, wearing a bunny cap with long ears for Easter, twinkling on prop snow in a skiing outfit while a fan blows her scarf, assuming an athletic stance while pretending to hit something with a bow and arrow. I, just, I wanted to read it because I thought that was so interesting that she was like, I'm never going to do any of that. And the fact that Samuel Golden, you know, having the power that he had, was like, okay. And she... He, he just discovered her out of nowhere, and she would, just got put into all these films and the star uh, status. So I just find it I find it funny that she had all these clauses in her contract when she signed. Get
1: over yourself. <laughs> Get over. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't even know what to make of that. Like, what the, what the fuck does that even mean? Like, I think that means that she
0: wanted genuine roles and not something that was going to be propaganda-ish
1: type of things. Stuff that was just going to be very cookie-cutter. A lot of it's really funny because a lot of these things remind me of like old posters in a way. And I am think even the one that I'm thinking of was, I think, a propaganda poster about the family sitting down with like the turkey. Like it's a famous painting that was used as like a poster as well. I mean, a lot of these things reminds me of like a woman playing with a cocker spaniel like i could see that on a poster a woman cutting a turkey like for her family i could see that on like a, a, a poster back in like the 40s or 50s as being like the motherly signifying woman so yeah maybe it is that like she doesn't want to be classified as just the mom housewife but like i'm sorry but that's kind of what your character is in mrs miniver and i don't think you really do much with it yeah and, and i think what's interesting also in this Categories that um
0: Dame May Witty, who plays Lady Belden, is also in this category, and as we said, she kind of had the more character development, but also Teresa Wright was pretty
1: good in this. I I think so. So it's probably her death, right? Is why she yeah, her, like it's I, traumatic. Everyone's thinking about 100%. it. You know, it's it plays 100%. into the end of the movie. Everyone's so sad, like that was such a good death performance. Yeah. It was shocking to see that you were shot. She was
0: that. yeah, she was very popular. She had been popular the year before. She was in the pride of the Yankees, uh, as well from this year, in which she was also nominated for Best Actress. So I just think that she her star power was probably at its height, and uh so that's probably why she took it
1: away for that for best supporting actress. Best supporting actor goes to Van Heffen for the film Johnny Eager as Jeff Hartnett. This is Heffin's only Academy win and nomination, and this performance was actually lauded by critics, with some even citing it as the only positive of the film itself. So also in this category, we actually have some big names. You
0: have Walter Huston, Frank Morgan is in this, and we also have Henry Travers as James Ballard and Mrs. Miniver. Uh, he's the, uh, you know, the guy who makes the Mrs. Miniver Rose I don't think he should have won, but he did get recognized in this category. So we have three nominations total between the Best Supporting Actor and Actress category. So interesting that 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 is there. Best Actress goes to Greer Garson for Mrs. Miniver as Kay Miniver. So according to some modern sources on the history of the Academy Award ceremonies, Garson's acceptance speech upon receiving her award was so lengthy that the academy henceforth requested that recipients limit their remarks. But the official and past publication on the Oscars notes that the length was considerably exaggerated, and Carson was quoted as saying, "Actually, it clocked at about five and a half minutes." But I somewhat fractured a long-standing rule, which was that a winner should simply say thank you and then dissolve into a flood of tears and sit down. The history continues that the length of Carson's speech did not result in a time limit for acceptance speeches. Uh, time restrictions were not imposed until many years later when the awards cere- ceremonies were broadcast live on television that is from afi's film catalog about the film so everyone talks about how gary garson gave his six minute speech it was really five like more like five and a half minute speech so they gave a little bit extra time to that i tried to find what i could on the speech there is a clip on youtube it has like two minutes of the speech and it's kind of talking about the war effort and what this means as like a you know, for like World War II and, and just the importance of, of being there for it. So that was probably what she was talking about for the most part. No one, there's no real like transcription of it to read uh, what she said, but she is, this is well known because she gave such a long speech at the Academy Awards, which does not really happen. So this is Garson's only win out of seven total nominations, including a record tying stretch of five consecutive nominations for Best Actress from 1941. To 1945, so she's definitely at a height of her height for popularity. She's definitely getting this award because of the popularity
1: of the film is really—I think—much else to say about girk Arsen for this. Not much. No, I think we talked about her performance and probably why it won. She's the lead. People really love this movie, and it seems to be inspiring a lot of people. But an interesting thing about this, obviously, is about the speech, the the limit. We haven't really talked about that too much. So I want to ask you. Do you think there should be a limit on the speech? Do you think they should play the music like they do to play people off? Should there just be like a warning sign that the the person speaking can see? Do you think it's I it's think right? it, I think it's, I don't know. I, I actually haven't thought about that too
0: much because I don't mind when they talk. I actually do watch a lot of like old clips and I go back and rewatch like a lot of the speeches and stuff. Yeah, especially when I was first going through all these movies, I would rewatch as many clips as I could that they had of it. So I was always interested to see what people would say. I think that like what Joaquin Phoenix did was a, a lot, but then propaganda. <laughs> but, it, but that's not pro- that's that's not propaganda. I, I, it is a political statement, and I think we sh- there should be that space there, and I think it's totally fine for him to do that. At the same time, then you also get like from that same year, you had uh, Renee Zellweger, who I think, was, was she drunk at that? Am I, am I just imagining <laughs> Probably. that? Because she seemed like completely drunk uh, during that ceremony. So I just. I don't care how long they talk as long as it's if you're going to talk say something don't just talk just to talk I guess would
1: be my answer on that Yeah I think it goes both ways I mean he can talk about whatever he wants because he won you know like if you win go up and talk about farts if you want to talk about farts <laughs> you know like I th- I think you have that time cuz you won this award go do it whether they should play the music I always found the music to be in like insanely rude. Like yeah, there's gotta be, there's gotta be a better way to do it. Like, yeah, the people might be going over their speech, but it's like cut their mic then, or like give a, on the podium, maybe there's like a sign that says like over time, or it gives you like a countdown clock. And if once it goes, it starts like pulsing. So you see it as someone who's speaking and then they'll cut your mic. If you keep going past that point.
0: Yeah. One of the things, and I think I can say this cause I work in television is that I never understood why there's a time limit for the Academy Awards. Think of it as like the Super Bowl. There's no time limit to the Super Bowl. It just ends when the game ends. The Academy Awards should just end when the Academy Awards end. Now, I'm not saying everyone should give a 10-minute speech, but I'm saying that there should be no reason to rush people unless unless it seems like they're starting to give a speech. If you want to let someone talk for two minutes at the max, I think that's okay because I think that's what most of a good lengthy speech should be. Because then I think it's also a little little hypocritical because then you also take like five minutes before you even say who the nominees are to show off all this stuff about the movies and give these like kind of like awful sometimes speeches about the filmmaking process I find (laughs) in some of the more recent Academy Awards. They really drop the ball and like the whole meaning of it and regardless uh, it's so I'm okay if they want to talk for long but yeah but don't talk for too long but also don't play music to get them out
1: yeah just it's rude you it's like distracting for an audience member you feel bad for the person you also can't even hear them which is kind of the point but it's just like well then cut their mic if you're just gonna play music over them like cut their mic so you still can't hear them usually it's like a transition fade where you can like slow their mic slowly goes away as the music starts like getting louder and louder but on the other hand it's led to some really funny moments yeah was it Cuba Gooding Jr. Yeah. Who just like stopped the music or whatever he <laughs> Yeah, said? he starts like just like going wild on the mm. screen.
0: You had uh, uh, Roberto Benigni going wild when he won. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and we'll touch upon those moments because we'll actually have archival footage to look at. But yeah, I, okay, so she gave a six minute speech. I don't think she actually caused this like whole rule to go into effect, but it's pretty interesting that she gave this very long speech and, and it's
1: the longest ever. Best Actor goes to James Cagney for Yankee Doodle Dandy as George M. Cohen. Cagney is remembered for playing multifaceted tough guys in films such as The Public Enemy from 1931, Taxi from 1932, Angels with Dirty Faces 1938, and City for Conquest in 1940 and White Heat in 1949. He found himself kind of typecast in uh, these type of roles, these tough guy, you know, macho men kind of roles. Uh, But Cagney actually walked out something I found really fascinating about his career is that he walked out of Warner Brothers several times over the course of his career, each time returning on much more improved and personal artistic terms. In 1935, he actually sued Warner Brothers for the breach of his contract and won. This was one of the first time an actor prevailed over a studio on a contract issue. He worked for an independent film company for a year while he was sued, while the suit was going on, and uh, while it was being settled, establishing his own production company, Cagney Productions. Uh, in 1942, before returning back to, se- to Warner Brothers seven years later, in reference to Cagney's refusal to be pushed around, Jack L. Warner called him the professional againster. Cagney also made numerous USO troop tours before and during World War II and served as president of the Screen Actors Guild for two years. So we haven't talked about him too much. He's come and popped up in the Academy a little bit here and there, but I definitely wanted to give him a shout-out and show that really interesting, just ballsy thing that he did by leaving Warner Brothers, you know, throwing out the middle finger, and then which happens so much that we've seen in Hollywood coming back and being kind of praised for doing something that was against the rules. Fascinating, I thought.
0: Best director went to William Wyler for Mrs. Miniver. After completing the film, William Wyler joined the U.S. Army and was posted to the Signal Corps. He was overseas on the night he won his first Oscar for this. He later revealed that his subsequent war experiences made him realize that the film actually portrayed war in too soft of a light. Wyler would go on to win three total times for best uh, director, which is second most all time. He would win for Mrs. Miniver, The Best Years of Our Lives, and Ben-Hur all best picture winners. So yeah, so William Wyler steps away with his first Oscar for this movie. I think this is kind of the first time where I'm like this he really doesn't deserve this type of thing. I I don't get it. I don't get I I didn't find anything that spectacular about the direction in this. I thought it was pretty cookie-cutter. I said it earlier. I thought it was like a sophomore film school type of film. He makes two really great films that would get recognition a little bit later in his career, but for right now, I, I don't really get this this win.
1: It's, it's so difficult. I mean, for me, it mainly felt like the script was the issue with this film and not so much the direction. I, I can't say the direction was great. I think it was just there to tell the story. It had some cool you know, some moments where there was cool shots. I think there were some cool ideas about, you know, not showing much of the bombs during the bomb shelter. And I thought there was some pretty cool blocking with some of the family and there's pretty good performances from our leads for the most part. So it's just like, it's not bad, but it just feels like people gave this to him because it was such a great film. Everyone was talking about it. It was the most, you know, biggest film of the year box office wise. And it just made a real cultural impact that uh yeah he was the mastermind behind it all so he deserves the best director award and i love some of his later films so i don't know what that says i think that says maybe it's just a bad script for me
0: yeah i i would agree i think it's just a bad script
1: and finally for outstanding motion picture our nominees are yankee doodle dandy wake island the talk of the town random harvest the pride of the yankees the pied piper the magnificent ambersons king's row 49th parallel and the winner mrs miniver for sydney franklin for metro golden mayor so ben is there not much more to say about mrs miniver (laughs) not not too much to say let's give
0: some stats though to back up what we think about this movie or really just the movie in general not actually what we think about it because we will get to that so mrs miniver Currently holds a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average Rotten Tomatoes rating of a 7.83 out of 10. Uh, the top critics review actually give it a 92% and the average critics rating is an 8.4. The audience score is an 85%, an average score out of 5, which is a 401 And an IMDb has a 7.6. It would win six total Oscars out of 12 nominations. 12 being the second most nominations by any of the Best Picture winners behind *Gone with the Wind, which had 13.
1: So, John, what did you give Mrs. Miniver? I gave Mrs. Miniver a 60 out of a 100, which kind of sits not so much in the middle, closer to the lower end between, you know, The Life of Emile Zola at a 55 for me and looking at mutiny on a bounty as as like a 65. So it's kind of in between those two films simply because I don't think it really worked as a film. I think it felt more as like a messaging bottle to kind of throw out into the the ocean that is America, the UK, and people to really get inspired by it. But it wasn't really there to tell an intriguing story. You know, it felt more, it had more to do with pushing these themes, really pushing this, this uh, agenda of fighting for war and I think that made the film suffer and it made the characters suffer as well. Yeah. I also
0: give Mrs. a 60. So we're both on the same page. Uh, again, when I first watched this movie, I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was like a B movie. I thought it was really solid and I was into it. And then I rewatched it and I was like, what the fuck was I thinking? And this movie was the first hour is completely pointless. It is full of propaganda, which I'm not going to say is a bad thing, but it just doesn't work as an entertainment value. It, it just doesn't really hold up as much as I thought it did. I'm really disappointed with some of the directing choices. So, yes, yeah, so I gave it that 60. Um, pr- I'm pretty much on the same page with John. So that makes our average rating. John, you have a 66.6 average rating. Very odd and ominous, the six six six, and I have a seventy two point nine average rating for all these movies. So some of them, as you said, you know, you have Mrs. Miniver, you have a, you have the life of Miozola, Simmer and Cavalcade that really bring down our scores. Broadway Melody really brings down our scores. So yeah, so let's answer that age old question: Is Mrs. Miniver worthy of the Best Picture Award of
1: 1942? No. Yeah. Nope. 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 Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's, it is a really hard one. I will note as well that this is the first time we have matching ratings since our first episode with Wings, which we both gave an 80. So I thought that was interesting. The yeah. first time we've like perfectly kind of aligned. I was like, oh, watch this movie together. Too. This was, yeah, which we haven't really for the majority. This was really, really hard to rate. Like I've talked about how hard it is to kind of put a rating on a film. And for me, this was so difficult because I wanted to give it a much lower score because I don't I really just don't think it works as a movie. Mm -hmm. Like I want character arcs like I keep talking about this over and over. I want like strong, compelling characters and a really interesting story, which I like on one hand, like the story is interesting. It's based on real life. There's really like intense, dramatic moments at times. But it's really the later half of the film. It's the last 45 minutes where we really get all of that. And there's not much of a conclusion on these characters. So it's like the film doesn't work. But on the other hand, I really have to stop and look at it from the point of view as the people of the time. Like this was probably really impactful. There was probably just like weeping audiences when they were like or just like screaming and yelling when they're trapped in the bunker like i could see all these things being like so scary, so intense, knowing that like how close we are to war with being attacked at like Pearl Harbor, like seeing how close that could have been for that to be California. Like i'm like trying to put myself in the mind state of people at the time that are going to see this film. So i'm like, ah, oh, i keep bouncing it back and forth. I want to give this film such a lower rating because it doesn't really work, but at the same time, there is some significance to that film that i think needs to be talked about and needs to be explored. And I think that we did that really well by talking about propaganda film and talking about the way the movie kind of pushes those agendas while also trying to tell a story. It just, you know, didn't land that story very well. So that's where I landed at a 60. What do you have any other uh, closing thoughts about Mrs. Miniver or our Academy Awards this year? No, I I'm, I'm kind of
0: done with this movie. <laughs> I, I, I just don't think it's, Again, like I don't know why I liked it at first, and that, and rewatching it again and going through it again, there's just nothing of a uh, of a filmmaking value that I think that is there. I think that yeah, okay, it's a propaganda film. I think that that's, I think it's important, like what it represented for its time, but I don't think it really holds any water now, and I just don't think it's a it's a good film at all. I think it's just there, and uh, it's not something that I, I will look back on as like, hmm, like do I re- like let me rethink this. I think I'm kinda of solidified in it. So so that's it. That that's Mrs. Miniver. That's the fifteenth Academy Awards. That's the fifteenth episode
1: of Worthy. Any final thoughts, John, before we uh, sign off? Nah, let's end on some propaganda of ourselves. <laughs> you know, follow us on Worthy Pod on Twitter, uh Worthy uh podcast on Instagram. You know, hit up our email, worthy submissions at Gmail. What else can we plug? What else what else we got? Uh I think I hit the major major I, I, I think we hit the major reach ones. Out. I mean here's the thing of you know, how we end this you know we talked very intensely and very harshly on this film at times and I mean, we look at reviews sometimes and I know people like really love this movie there's some people that like adore this movie and think it's a really strong powerful piece of filmmaking that can push and move these kinds of agendas and I think there's something to that. I don't really think the film works in that way, but I want the audience, if anyone's listening, if anyone likes this movie, or even if you like it a little bit more than us, tell us why. Tell us what we're missing, if there's something else that we need to explore or think about more, or if there's some aspect of these characters that uh, are deserving more value than we gave them. And tell us why, because I can't figure it out. Why is this movie (laughs) called Mrs. Miniver? Please tell me why. Yes, please tell us why. So I'm Ben. And I'm John. And this is Worthy. Thanks for listening to Worthy, a breakdown of every best picture winner from past to present. Listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to Worthy Submissions at Gmail.com. That's Worthy Submissions at Gmail.com.